The Interchange is brought to you by Enel X, the global leader in advanced energy solutions. Enel X serves large businesses, governments, utilities, as well as thousands of consumers in an effort to bring cleaner, smarter solutions to market and enable rapid decarbonization. Learn what Enel X can do for your business at enelx.com. That's E N E L X.com. The Interchange is also brought to you by Smarter Grid Solutions. Smarter Grid Solutions Derms products are used by distribution utilities, energy service companies, and microgrid operators to manage grid capacity and resilience and to seamlessly integrate energy assets to the grid and market. To find out how Smarter Grid Solutions software can integrate renewable and distributed energy into the grid and give you real control over your clean energy assets, visit info dot smartergridsolutions.com slash interchange or just click through that link there in the show notes it's still you know pretty much at the top of its buzzwordiness right now and i think some some cold hard uh, reality on costs is probably going to sink in and we'll dash some expectations and then we'll see that actually it really is very important in some sectors gray green blue turquoise red There's all this excitement about hydrogen in all of its many shades, but when and how will it live up to all the hype? This is The Interchange. I'm Shail Khan. I'm a partner at the venture capital firm Energy Impact Partners. Welcome. So I spend a lot of time thinking about technologies that are in their early days today, but where you can just feel the momentum, or in some cases, the hype building. It's generally a pretty unscientific exercise, as you can imagine. I mean, how do you measure the level of hype around a particular technology? But one of my little hacks to make it at least marginally quantitative is to use Google Trends, which lets you track the volume of Google searches over time for particular words or phrases. So today's episode is all about hydrogen, and particularly green hydrogen. So here's what Google Trends has to tell us. The hype around the term green hydrogen really only started to build in late 2019, early 2020. So it's pretty recent, but it's been on a steady upward trajectory worldwide since then. But more interesting, perhaps, is the geography of these searches. Denmark, is far and away the country with the most search activity around green hydrogen, more than double the next country, according to Google. The top 10 is rounded out with, in order, Nepal, the United Arab Emirates, Australia, Singapore, New Zealand, Oman, Norway, the UK, and Canada. The US is number 12, in case you were wondering. So setting aside Nepal for a second, maybe somebody can explain what's going on in hydrogen Uh, in Nepal to me. But apart from that, the list basically makes sense, I think. You could basically group the countries into three categories. The first group is Europe, and especially Northern Europe, which is home to, I think, the most early government support for green hydrogen and, and where the market indeed may actually take off first. The second group are countries that hope to be major hydrogen producers and even exporters. Australia, the United Arab Emirates, Oman, New Zealand maybe, they want to be the hydrogen powerhouses of tomorrow, exporting their production to places like Japan and Singapore. Group three, places like Singapore, which could potentially be major demand hubs for hydrogen, even if they don't produce a ton of it themselves. In any event, the momentum around green hydrogen is clearly building across 
many countries, but there are still so many open questions about the economics, about the end uses, about the production methods, and more. So to dig into some of them, I had a great chat with my friend Ramez Nam. Mez is an author, an energy futurist, an investor, uh, and an all-around sharp dude when it comes to the energy transition and all of its component parts. So my conversation with Mez, here we go. Mez, welcome. Hey, Shale. Great to have you here. We are going to spend some time talking about hydrogen, everybody's favorite topic at the moment. And I figured I'd start with, uh, you are our resident author on this podcast. So where do you think we are today in the narrative arc of the hydrogen economy? I think uh, it's a great question. I think right now hydrogen is being sold as sort of the holy grail, the protagonist of the story that's going to solve everything. Uh, it differs in different quarters. Uh, and I think we're going to find that we're in something you've used, the, the hype cycle, and that expectations are going to drop somewhat. And then eventually we'll find where it really does add value and where it doesn't. Do you think we're at the peak of the hype cycle now? Have we already peaked or have we not yet peaked? <laughs> You know, it's hard to say because the peak is sort of different for different industries. This is probably the most chatter about hydrogen we've seen in quite some time. The chatter has shifted a bit away from the areas where it was most overhyped, ground transport, namely. But it's still, you know, pretty much at the top of its buzzworthiness right now. And I think some, some cold, hard uh, reality on costs is probably going to sink in and we'll dash the expectations, and then we'll see that actually it really is very important in some sectors. Hydrogen strikes me as uh, a perfect example of that old Bill Gates aphorism of, you know, we underestimate, or sorry, no, we overestimate what we can achieve in two years and underestimate what we can achieve in 10 years or something like that. I think right? that's really like what, yeah. what is two years from now, is the hydrogen market going to look meaningfully different from how it does today, do you think? No, not at all. Not the clean hydrogen market. Well, what you'll see two years from now is even more announcements of giant projects to scale hydrogen, unprecedentedly large size, most of which don't actually have their financing, most of which don't actually like, you know, have a buyer for their product. Uh, so there'll be more buzz, but in terms of actual utilization of green hydrogen or blue hydrogen, any sort of non-carbon emitting hydrogen, it's still going to be utterly tiny two years from now. And in terms of cost effectiveness, two years from now, it's still going to be very, very far away from hydrogen, from clean hydrogen being cost effective for just about anything in two years. You've done a great job over the years of tracking the narrative arc and the cost arc of both solar PV and lithium ion batteries. Do you think of hydrogen as, or green hydrogen maybe specifically as being on a similar trajectory, but at an earlier stage to those other technologies? Or do you see something fundamentally distinct about hydrogen? So yes and yes, in that I think, A, green hydrogen does have this exponential cost trajectory for two reasons. One is the electricity, the green electrons, are plunging in cost as solar and wind come down in price. And two is the electrolyzers themselves that we use, you know, put electricity in and water and get hydrogen and oxygen out they also have a learning rate that seems to be quite similar to our renewable energies. So for that reason, the cost of green hydrogen in particular is going to plunge over the coming years. At the same time, I think it's not yet clear that green hydrogen will ever be just cost competitive without subsidies in the way that solar and wind and electric vehicles 
look to be. It may be still that for some applications where we want to decarbonize, that green hydrogen might be the cheapest way to shift away from fossil fuels, but still more expensive than fossil fuels. And I think that's still a sort of an open question. Maybe for the folks who don't already know, remind us what the learning rates have been. Well, first of all, what the, what's the importance of learning rates and what have the learning rates been for, for solar and for lithium ion or for PV and for lithium ion? And then what do we know at this point about the learning rate for electrolysis? Yeah. So learning rates, it, it's Wright's law. We talk about Moore's law a lot. It's this concept that every doubling of cumulative scale of an industry drives a certain percentage cost reduction. And so in solar, most people tell you a lower number, but over the last decade, the number is a 30% price decline for every doubling of scale of solar. So every quadrupling means then that you're cutting the cost in half, roughly, which is a, a very, very big deal. In wind, it's been more like 19 or 20%. In batteries, somewhere between those two, somewhere, something like 25%. What we see in electrolyzers is somewhere between the high teens and the low 20s. So maybe you know, 19, 20% might be a, a reasonable estimate of how fast uh, the newer sorts of electrolyzers, in particular PEM electrolyzers, are dropping in cost. Two follow-up questions to that. The first is, we're at the early days of this market, as you alluded to, and so the scale today is pretty small, which means that doublings come reasonably fast at this stage of the market. That indicates then, I would think, if the uh, if we're going to get a 20% or so cost reduction per doubling that you know, we might see doublings, you know, even though the market might not look crazy different two years from now, it's not hard to double the size of the green hydrogen market today because it's, the, you know, starting from a base of virtually zero. So does that mean that we are going to see a pretty steep price decline, at least for the next few years? We are going to see a very steep price decline, both in electrolyzers themselves, which currently dominate costs. And again, as electricity that's going in as an input drops in cost, that will also benefit. And so we're going to go, you know, today, if you'd say green hydrogen, sorry, gray hydrogen, fossil fuel hydrogen made from methane, steam reforming, is somewhere between a dollar and a dollar fifty a kilo, let's say. Green hydrogen made from electrolysis powered by clean electricity might be six or eight dollars a kilo. So it's still, you know, it's more expensive than solar was relative to coal in 2005 or something on that order, right? Quite expensive. Now, by 2030, we should expect to see some green hydrogen below $1.50 a kilo and maybe as low as $1 a kilo. And then it starts to compete with fossil hydrogen, which is this $100 billion business itself for making fertilizer and going into refineries. Um, and that's a good step point. But if you really want to look at, you know, where could we use hydrogen? Where do we not have solutions for decarbonization in areas like steel making, high temperature industrial heat, long term, long duration storage, seasonal storage, maybe making electrofuels to drop into aircraft and that sort of thing? That's not a hundred billion dollar market. That's a you know trillion plus dollar market or larger than that. And for that to be cost effective to be cost competitive with fossil fuels straight up with no carbon price, no subsidy, you would expect to need a price much, much lower, maybe down to like 40 cents or 35 cents a kilo. And there we don't really have optics on how we achieve that. That's an interesting insight that maybe we can just spend another second on because I, I think a lot of people, you know, it's it's nice to have a benchmark, this is the promised land cost target for a given technology. For a long time with solar, it was a dollar a watt 
CapEx or, you know, the Sunshop initiative sort of decided they didn't want to talk about CapEx anymore as they talked about six cents a kilowatt hour levelized cost. With lithium ion batteries, it's been, you know, $100 a kilowatt hour CapEx. Now maybe it's $50 a kilowatt hour CapEx, something like that. In hydrogen, green hydrogen, um, as you described, I think that most most people have talked about the promised land being, say, $1.50 a kilogram uh, levelized cost of hydrogen because that's where you compete with the production cost of gray hydrogen today. Now, I want to, I do want to make two caveats though: one to the positive side, and one to the negative side for green hydrogen in this context. On the positive side, from what I've heard, and you can tell me if you've heard differently, um, there aren't very many buyers who are actually getting gray hydrogen for $1.50 a kilogram. That may be the production cost, but the actual delivered cost to customers, particularly customers who are not like ammonia factories that are gigantic, can be, you know, multiples of that. So the the cost against which you're competing is a moving target or at least variable. That's on the positive side. On the negative side, though it is true so far that the cost of electricity, your primary input cost, um, benefits from the ever-falling cost of renewables, it's not always true that the delivered cost of electricity tracks the same way, right? And so retail prices for electricity have not fallen. In most cases, they've stayed flat or gone up during the same period that renewables have gotten cheaper and cheaper. Those are both good insights. And I actually think they're both negative for green hydrogen, actually, because so... If you really look at how can you make the world's cheapest green hydrogen, what you find is you're not going to make it next to giant demand centers. Instead, you're going to make it in places of the best sun and best wind that are often remote, lightly populated. Places like North Africa, parts of Australia, maybe Chile or Argentina. And that's not actually where you need the hydrogen, right? And so there you can, that's how you can get wholesale prices. You, you would build, honestly, in my view, the way to do it is to build a captive solar or wind farm or combined solar wind plant whose primary purpose in life is to feed the green hydrogen electrolyzers, right? And you're not buying retail rates. You just own the capacity of green energy that's producing this hydrogen. But then you've got to get it to market. And so while it's true what you're saying that the price for gray hydrogen is somewhat opaque uh, and what people are paying is higher than the production costs, that's in part because of transport costs. But how far do you have to transport gray hydrogen versus green? Gray hydrogen you make from methane steam reforming. Anywhere you have natural gas, you can put it in a methane steam reformer and make gray hydrogen on the spot. And so a lot of refineries and a lot of ammonia factories have gray hydrogen production actually really quite close, maybe owned by the same entity that's doing it. With green hydrogen, you're often gonna make it further away. If you wanna get these rock bottom prices, it's gonna be made further away from where the demand is than gray hydrogen. And hydrogen is very, very expensive and difficult to move. So in many ways, I think that actually makes the world harder for green hydrogen. Yep, I think that is a good point. Um, I, one other question on the learning rates thing. So you mentioned the learning rates specifically for PEM electrolyzers. And so folks who already know about green hydrogen will know, or about electrolysis, will know that there may be, I don't know, four or five sort of competing technologies for types of electrolyzers. You you mentioned PEM. There's also alkaline, AEM electrolyzers, solid oxide. There's And there's a couple more that are even newer. Um, do you think that there will be learning learnings uh, that come from scale across those technologies? Or does one individual pathway have to scale up for it to achieve the, 
to learning rates? That's a great question. I don't think I have a, a very informed answer on that. But it does appear that learning rates differ somewhat. So Alkaline is currently the cheapest technology. It was the highest scale for a long time. It has a learning rates probably a little bit lower than PEM. That's what it looks like right now. PEM is newer, but is what has gained a lot of share in the last few years. It has a slightly faster learning rate. And new, newer technologies than that, like solid oxide, solid oxide has the potential to be higher efficiency than either PEM or alkaline, which is great for getting the most value of the energy putting in. But it's still super expensive, and I think we're a little bit early to really say with confidence what the learning rates are on that technology. Let's talk about policy for a second, because this is a market that is going to be, as as you've described, right? It's it's going to be not competitive. Green hydrogen will not be purely competitive on an economic basis for some time. Hopefully, it will ultimately be economically competitive. But I don't think anybody would argue that it's economically competitive today. And so it is inherently a market that's going to be driven by policy, at least in the near term, to get it up to speed. Now, that's not a knock on the market. That's exactly how we got to where we are with solar and wind and are getting to with lithium-ion batteries today. But uh, nonetheless, it requires a fair amount of policy. We have been seeing a fair amount of policy action, less so in the United States and, and more abroad over the past couple of years. So what's the policy landscape look like? From your perspective. Yeah, that's right. As you stated, like solar and wind got scaled by German policies, the energy vendor and other things in, in Europe and so on. And so we are seeing the birth of policies for green hydrogen or for specific sectors where green hydrogen might be the solution, uh, in particular in Europe and Japan. Europe has a national or a, a you know EU-wide hydrogen strategy, and then each country inside of the EU has its own hydrogen strategy. Now, those are not necessarily in the form of totally binding uh, mandates at this point, uh, but you do see a lot of government investment going into funding green hydrogen projects in Europe. You see uh, you know, utilities or natural gas pipeline owners who are saying, okay, we're going to start to work on blending hydrogen into our gas system. You see the creation of hydrogen hubs, where there's an idea of we'll take a port near an offshore wind farm, we'll make that a center place where we create hydrogen and we use it for various applications nearby. You see the Scandinavian ski steel industry uh, really pushing into we're going to make uh, our steel as much as possible with hydrogen instead of coal in part because a little bit uh, Europe's carbon prices are part of that story. Uh, part of it is they maybe are anticipating there might be a policy down the road that says steel making has to decarbonize at a certain rate. Uh, and even now, we see some signs that some buyers uh, in the automotive sector, for instance, might be interested in buying steel made from hydrogen rather than coal, even if it's somewhat of a price premium to be able to advertise that as a value of their of their vehicle. I should also note, just because I have a self-interest here, they're also in, automakers are also interested in buying steel made from electricity. We have BMW as an investor in Boston Metal, which I'm also an investor in. Uh, so wh whichever pathway, the point being there's demand for green steel. Indeed. And I think that's very interesting to bring up because you've got Boston Metal there and you've got multiple pathways where hydrogen might be the most competitive way to decarbonize also for their options. So in steel making, hydrogen is maybe the leading contender for how to make uh, steel without uh, using coal, but it's not the only game in town. For long seasonal storage, hydrogen is maybe the leading contender in Europe, certainly, but it's not the only game in town when you've got Forum Energy or Energy Vault or a dozen other startups going after this. Um, but so we'll see in, in Europe, like a mix of policies 
Some aims really at hydrogen, others aimed at sectoral decarbonization uh, can help push. Japan is even more interesting because Japan is an energy island. It's a literal island, but Japan is one of the hardest places on earth to power entirely with renewables. Very, very high population density, uh, not a great solar resource, very hard to build onshore wind. The continental shelf slopes away very rapidly since it's a volcanic island, so traditional bottom-mounted offshore wind is quite hard. Floating offshore wind might be a big part of the solution, but even then you have to add some seasonal storage. So Japan is interested in hydrogen both as a way to decarbonize, but also as a way to import energy. Right? Japan's a massive importer of coal and LNG today, and Japan feels that it's you know sort of behind on meeting its, uh, even going back to Kyoto, but also Paris commitments. And so in Japan, they're talking about importing hydrogen, uh, green hydrogen or blue hydrogen, in the form of ammonia. Ammonia is NH3, so you add a nitrogen uh, atom to three hydrogens, so you add ammonia. And ammonia is something we know how to ship and move around. There's a large industry of that today. Uh, and so both at the ministerial level, the Ministry of Energy and Technology there, and their largest power generator, the largest IPP, uh, JIRA, are talking about converting coal plants to run on a mix of coal and clean uh, ammonia. They're doing those studies right now with the goal of maybe that being what replaces LNG as an import into Japan. Now there, I'd say we have some danger, and this is really sort of the conflict pops up in Japan quite obviously in a way that it doesn't quite in Europe, but the Japanese statements on this are also that it will be cost-effective, that it will be cost-competitive. And those two things are at odds, because there's almost no world where you can do the math and say that green ammonia being shipped into Japan from Australia or the Middle East is going to be as cheap as coal or even as cheap as LNG. So when push comes to shove, and they see that to meet these decarbonization objectives by doing it this way, that the price of electricity is going to go up, what will Japan actually do? I think that remains to be seen. Last question on hydrogen generally, and then we I want to talk about some of the end-use sectors. You've already alluded to a couple of them, but we can run through some more. Um, we've been talking mostly about green hydrogen based on electrolysis, but you did mention uh, you did mention blue hydrogen. There's a couple of different shades of blue hydrogen. People talk about blue or turquoise hydrogen. The, the, the colors are going to become problematic as this market becomes more nuanced, clearly. But uh, you know, at the high level, it's either steam methane reforming, which is how we currently make hydrogen uh, via natural gas, but with carbon capture attached to it, or something like methane pyrolysis, where you run a different process, also using natural gas, but then produce usually hydrogen and uh, solid carbon as a byproduct, both of which don't emit greenhouse gases, at least not downstream. There's an argument about you know natural gas use upstream, but they don't emit um, in the production of the hydrogen. Uh, and my perception of it is that you know Europe, from a policy perspective and for most of the announcements, has been pretty green hydrogen focused. Though that appears, I think, maybe to be changing a little bit as as you alluded to, people wake up to the cost implications in the near term. And so then there's emerging a little bit of a discussion around blue hydrogen as a bridge potentially. And then in North America, I think I would have expected to see blue hydrogen have a ton of momentum just because natural gas is so prominent here. But I haven't seen as much of it as I would have anticipated. I'm curious what you think about that. Yeah, it is interesting. Europe does seem sort of politically, almost morally, 
uh, aligned with green hydrogen. Europe tends to not like the idea of using natural gas to produce hydrogen, even if it would be cost-effective. I think in the long term, it doesn't matter. So I think in the long term, green hydrogen will be cheaper than blue hydrogen, most parts of the world at any rate. Um, Japan has been the opposite. Japan has been making the assumption that the clean ammonia they're going to import, the clean hydrogen that goes into making that, will probably be blue and probably done by carbon capture of methane seam reforming in Australia, most likely, but also maybe the Middle East. Uh, you do see some, some funny numbers in blue hydrogen, I'd say a bit, which is if you look at some Saudi numbers on what they can produce blue hydrogen at, uh, it turns out that hidden in those numbers is that they're going to take the, carbon the captured carbon from the methane seam reforming and the carbon capture and then sell it off for enhanced oil recovery. And you're like, well, that wasn't exactly uh, carbon neutral in that case if it's being used to enhance, you know, how much oil production that you have. Uh, the U.S., I'd say, is just super nascent at this point. So it's, it's really, I wouldn't read too much into U.S. policy in any case because it's we're not really a substantial hydrogen market at this point. It, the game really is Europe and Japan and then be after that South Korea. Uh, and so we'll see. But as I said, my expectation is that by... 2030, 2035 at the outside, if you take away this, you know, other revenue stream of enhanced oil recovery, that green hydrogen in the cheapest parts of the world will be substantially cheaper than blue hydrogen. So that makes it this classic, in, in your mind, the blue hydrogen is a sort of bridge to nowhere. Like if we build a bunch of blue hydrogen assets today that have a 15 or 20 year useful life, by the end of that life, will they be uneconomic? I think they will be. And I think you see this really where it most piqued my interest was Australia's national hydrogen strategy, which is an export-focused hydrogen strategy, was all about blue hydrogen, which it, it, they've changed it a little bit. That was the initial one they published, which is sort of shocking in a country that has such amazing solar and wind resources and is very short-sighted, in my view. We're going to take a brief pause here to talk about our supporters of the interchange. We are brought to you by Enel X. Look, we all know the energy industry is changing quickly, changing faster every day. Project developers are seeing growing demand as businesses and utilities seek more renewable and distributed energy. Enel X helps solar partners get more revenue from projects by adding flexible distributed energy assets. Enel X installs, maintains, and manages energy storage systems, smart electric vehicle charging systems, and more. Enel X's solutions help customers of all sizes use energy smarter by accessing lucrative grid programs and reducing emissions. Find out more about NLX at enelx.com. That's enelx.com. We are also brought to you by Smarter Grid Solutions. Smarter Grid Solutions is a leading enterprise energy software company specializing in distributed energy resource management systems. It operates from New York and Glasgow. Smarter Grid Solutions has the Strata Grid product, which seamlessly integrates, controls, and optimizes grid-connected distributed energy units of any type and size in any location. This enables distribution utilities to monitor and control customer DER connections, meaning they can manage grid capacity and headroom, manage flexibility, save on grid upgrade investments, and serve their customers better. Smarter Grid Solutions has already saved distribution utility customers more than $300 million in investment costs for grid upgrades. To learn more about Smarter Grid Solutions and the control of clean energy assets offered by Strata Grid, visit info.smartergridsolutions.com interchange or go ahead over to that link in the show notes. All right, let's talk about the 
all the myriad of end uses for for hydrogen, be it green or blue or otherwise. And and you talked about this before, right? There's an existing there is an existing market, hundred billion dollar market for hydrogen today, and it is basically uh, petrochemical refining and uh, fertilizer production. But that's not why everybody is so excited about hydrogen. They're excited about this multitude of other use cases. There's this chart that I really like that Michael Liebreich, uh, the former founder of Bloomberg New Energy Finance, has been putting online that has a million sectors graded from A to G, A being the sort of like no-brainers for hydrogen, G being the ones that he thinks are folly. And I'll just give you a couple examples of those that are in the A and the G category so you get a sense and then I want to hear what you think is sort of the, the highest priority and lowest priority. So his uh, grade A end markets, fertilizer, existing markets, hydrocracking, methanol, um, desulfurization, the food industry. These are ba- basically he's saying grade A is sort of the existing hydrogen markets for the most part. Uh, then it goes in, in grade B, electrofuels for long haul aviation, which is actually like a pretty strong statement in my opinion, but we can come back to that. Same thing for shipping, steel, as we described, uh, local CO2 remediation. Then I'll skip a few levels. And the ones at the bottom in his mind, domestic heating, regional trucking, uh, regional and metro trains, hydrogen fuel cell, passenger vehicles, urban delivery, bulk electrofuels, light aviation, and power system balancing. Yeah, initial reaction. You know, I I think I love Michael. He's he's not shy about putting out strong opinions, but I think you know he's more right than wrong on this, as is usually the case. Uh, and I'd say, look, the up until now, if you go back a decade and you say, what were people talking about for hydrogen? They were talking about light passenger vehicles, and that is a dead, dead, dead market. Hydrogen has no future in passenger cars, despite Toyota still having ads for the Mirai show up in my Twitter feed, you know, every hour or so. Uh, Toyota's interesting <laughs> in this, by the way. They've, uh, they, they, they're still pushing hydrogen fuel cell cars, but have also started to come around to electric vehicles of late. It feels like they're slowly but surely recognizing the folly of their ways. It does seem like it. They're taking a sort of a all of the above uh, approach right now. So you know, ground transport is what's had the most buzz. And I, I would go a little bit further and say, it's not just cars, it's delivery vans, it's light trucks, it's medium trucks, and even for semi-tractor trailers, hydrogen is just not gonna win. There might be a few specialized uses, uh, maybe police vehicles or ambulances, things that have a very high duty cycle that you can't have any time when they're not available for travel, but anything that's competing primarily on cost is gonna be electric if you can get the range right, and the only place where we can't get the range right are long distance trains and maybe a few, you know, specialty vehicles in the mining sector and things like that. All right. So we found one area of uh, difference in views between you and this chart, which is you're basically saying all ground transportation, including, for example, long distance trucking, semi semi trucks, which Michael has at grade D, which is about the middle of the pack for him. So, you know, he's not in love with it, but uh, doesn't think it's out of the question as as you seem to. It's like F. So uh, yeah, yeah. It, maybe on a couple of levels. Uh, there's still right. you know I I don't know why people bought Nikola shares when they went public. Sorry, I'm not a stock analyst. Shouldn't talk about that. But uh, I just don't see a future there. It's just so clear that electric is going to be cheaper and has sufficient range, sufficient capacity. Uh, 
you know, Michael's chart is really focused on like what are the most addressable markets, I would say is how he scale like scales these in some sense. And so yes, fertilizer, methanol, things like that that are uh, current consumers of hydrogen are the ones that are the easiest for green hydrogen to access. That's where the, the price bar is sort of well known and, and looks quite achievable, but they're not the biggest markets, right? So what are the biggest markets? The biggest markets are probably seasonal power storage, um, steel making, maybe other high temperature industrial heat, and potentially uh, electrofuels, primarily for shipping and aviation. Let's talk about electrofuels in a second, because I think that one's an interesting question. But first, I on the addressable question for things like fertilizer, you're right that they're, you know, they currently use hydrogen and the prices are reasonably well known, but they're also really tight margin commodity markets. So it doesn't strike me as, I mean, absent sufficient policy support, obviously. You know, it's not easy to make green hydrogen as cheap as you make your uh as you make your hydrogen for ammonia today, especially because that's at that's like at the largest scale, which means it is at the cheapest cost of any hydrogen being produced today. I think it's plausible that in 2030 or soon after that, that in the best solar wind sites around the world, you just be able to make green hydrogen just plain cheaper than gray hydrogen. And so you look at some places like, for instance, I just am looking at Algeria. Algeria has an ammonia industry. It has ammonia factories and ammonia terminals for export to Europe. And Algeria also has amazing solar and wind. So that's one part of the world. You know, not every fertilizer factory or every refinery is near amazing solar and wind resources. But to think that you can either find situations where they already are or where ammonia is being moved from a place like that, or when you're planning a new factory, you're gonna put it in a place that has that abundance of solar and wind, take advantage of it. Now that's a slow cycle for replacement, uh, but those are where I think green hydrogen could really just win on pure economics. In the same way that we talk about solar and wind, sometimes now just winning on pure economics. All right, let's talk for a minute about electrofuels. So first, describe, describe electrofuels and the role that hydrogen could play in them. And then I am interested to get your take on what makes, what would it take to make electrofuels yeah. cost competitive? So electrofuels are, you know, using electricity and captured carbon to make hydrocarbons that are ideally drop-in replacements. So jets, for instance, burn kerosene. Jet A is actually a blend of kerosene and a few other things. Let's call it kerosene. Kerosene is a hydrocarbon. And so with electricity, you could, in theory, crack water to produce hydrogen. You could capture some carbon, either from a high intensity or a high concentration stream in a flue or from directly from the air, and do some chemistry to combine those into actual kerosene, the exact same molecule that you could then drop into an aircraft engine. Or similarly, you could do that to make uh, a much dirtier fuel to stick into uh, ships, but it doesn't have to be a bunker fuel. You can make something else that engine will burn. So nothing prevents us from doing that scientifically. The physics and chemistry are sound. The question is cost. Uh, and you know we've seen a long couple decades of trying to make biofuels that were cost competitive with uh, gasoline and diesel. That's been very, very painful to watch. There's been a lot of failure of that. There's been a lot of challenges of scaling. 
But even if you could hit the cost numbers you wanted on biofuels, the land footprint of biofuels is so enormous, right? To, to fuel U.S. Uh, gasoline consumption with biofuels would take basically the entirety of the U.S. to grow corn for this, right? It just doesn't, doesn't make sense at all. It doesn't scale. Electrofuels can be much more physically compact and take advantage of these learning curves in technologies like solar and wind, electrolyzers, and so on, to be able to make it you know, cost competitive, or at least have a, a rapid cost decline, even if it may or may not be quite cost competitive. Right. Though the challenges with electrofuels, I mean, the economic challenge there is substantial because you both need to drive down the cost of the hydrogen. You need to drive down the cost of the carbon capture. You need to drive down the cost of the process to combine the hydrogen and the carbon to make the hydrocarbons. You need cheap electricity to do that. And, you know, we're going to be electrifying all this other stuff simultaneously. So you really need to expand electricity capacity, which does take land. I'm not saying that it's better than biofuels, certainly as a decarbonization pathway, but it faces, I think, a, an even bigger economic challenge than biofuels. What What's interesting to me, you know, you mentioned um, Jet-A, is the announcements that you see right now coming out of all the airlines um, and some of the airplane makers, Boeing and Airbus and things like that, the, the, you know, Airbus has, has staked a, a claim on hydrogen. They seem interested in producing some hydrogen-fueled planes by mid-next mid decade. It seems to me like most of the big airlines, certainly the North American airlines, are placing a lot of hope in sustainable aviation fuel that is predominantly biofuels at the moment. And I wonder what you make of that. So I think both of those pathways are more for PR than reality. <laughs> to be totally blunt, look, bio-based sustainable aviation fuels, unless we get real third-generation biofuels, you know, genetically modified algae or cyanobacteria, is the only thing that gives you any hope of that scaling to the volume that you need. So the, the airlines, you know, are talking about this as a fig leaf to cover their emissions, to say that they're doing something on this, but it's just not a real solution. Uh, on the other side, Airbus, Airbus's interest is not in decarbonizing aviation, it's in selling aircraft. And so they, they would love a solution where uh, to clean up aviation, everybody has to buy more planes from Airbus. But what, what would passengers like the most, uh, passengers and airlines, if we have to decarbonize, is being able to use the current capital stock of aircraft with a clean fuel you can put in it that you can make at scale. And the only hope for that is electrofuels. Now, I'm with you. I don't think electrofuels are going to compete with, you know, dollar a gallon kerosene. Kerosene actually costs more than that, but let's call it that. Uh, even at $2 a gallon, you're not going to compete with Jet A anytime soon. You might ultimately by 2040, maybe, let's say. But I think this will be a case where uh, we'll have a policy driver to decarbonize aviation. There will be policies that start probably in Europe to begin with that says that aviation has to decarbonize at a given pace. And we'll say, what's the cheapest option to do that? And for short haul flights, you can do electric. But once you're crossing an ocean or going from coast to coast on a continent, you're not going to do electric. And the cheapest way to do that counting the cost of capital of aircraft as well as fuel is going to be electrofuels that you can burn in existing aircraft. All right. So you, like me, are an investor. 
you invest in early stage companies. And, you know, this is one of the questions I've been grappling with is um, sort of being able to see a little bit with some clarity into the future about hydrogen and being fundamentally bullish on the growth prospects for hydrogen over the next decade. Um, how do you think about investing in individual companies in and around hydrogen? Because we, we've seen, you know, there are stories that you can point to historically, like solar being the obvious example where, you know, there was a moment that probably looked somewhat like this. You could be fundamentally bullish on the future of the solar market. You could see the policies coming, the support for it. And there was a proliferation of many, many different technologies that were purporting to have the future cheapest cost and highest efficiency solar panels. And we all know how that story played out. There were, you know, hundreds of companies and two non-Chinese scaled up <laughs> successes in the form of Sun Power and First Solar, basically. And, uh, you know, so how do you think about hydrogen in that regard? I think we are in a situation very similar to that right now. I think you have a proliferation of hydrogen startups in various ways. You know, a lot of companies, small startups making electrolyzers, but also big industrialists like Siemens making their own electrolyzers and so on. Uh, you have other technologies uh, in the stack or in the flow that are coming in, and they're not all going to survive. It's going to be Darwinian, and a lot of companies are going to fail. So I'm very wary. When I invest in a sector, I'd like to see, you know, 10 competitors. I'd like to know sort of what their claims are in the landscape. And ideally, I want to see some failures. So I feel like I have an intuitive understanding of where the bodies are buried or where the where the pit, pitfalls and landmines are in the sector. And I think in hydrogen, we're still, you know, we're quite young. And it's tough, honestly, to unless you're uh, an electrochemist or a physicist. And even then, if you have a really deep understanding of what drives different learning rates and different technologies and can say with confidence, okay, I've surveyed the whole landscape of electrolyzers, let's say, and I really believe this technology is one that has the greatest potential to bring down costs and I see a path to market for it. Uh, it's really tough to pick winners in this space. The path to market is also key. I mean, the other, the other lesson from the solar experience was there are a bunch of technologies that um, maybe actually would have been cost competitive if they had been able to scale up to the same degree. But what happened instead is that we started getting, you know, manufacturers largely in China and then in Southeast Asia, um, who just scaled up the incumbent technology so fast that crystalline silicon became the runaway winner, even, even before some of these other technologies had a chance to prove themselves. And we haven't seen that happen yet in electrolysis. I mean, you alluded to like Siemens. Siemens is not the one I would be most worried about if I were a novel electrolyzer company, it is Longi, the largest solar manufacturer in the world who has now started a subsidiary called Longi Hydrogen. Like, you know, you know those gigafactories are coming. Yep. I think that's very reasonable. And I think you're totally right. Like in, in solar, we've seen this in batter systems and we've seen this too, that learning rates being what they are, a technology that's achieved more scale is going to be cheaper than a technology that's achieved less scale, even if the younger technology would eventually be cheaper. So there's a path dependency that occurs and you can squeeze things out. And so I'd look at, for instance, solid oxide electrolyzers might be the best thing down the road. We don't know yet, but they might have the highest efficiency, good response times, and might get to costs as low or lower than PEM or alkaline. But it could be that alkaline or now PEM, which is dominating right now, might just get big fast enough to squeeze that technology out and keep it from ever, ever coming to market. It's it's tough to assess that situation. And, you know, there's always a conflict as a climate investor, which is that hard tech, deep tech in general, 
It's like the world needs the most to solve the climate crisis, uh, but it's the area that has the worst returns uh, in climate tech uh, because it's capital intensive. It's all you know competing on cost, and those margins are constantly being compressed by competition, which is awesome for the world and for consumers, uh, but it's scary as an investor. This is a topic for another day, but I've always had issues with that that data point of hard tech having the worst returns. Oh. And I think I think it's more nuanced than that, let's, actually. Let's um, talk about that. I'd also say SPACs have changed that, at least in the last yeah, I mean, 12 months. SPACs, I think, and then I think there's more coming, right? Like yeah. SPACs are going to then yield M&A and their, the IPO window is open. Like I think... I think that that historical data on hard tech versus soft tech in in clean tech is not going to apply in the future. I'd love doesn't necessarily actually, and I'm okay, sure to well, hear you say that. Yeah, well, it, I have self interest to be fair. Well, this is uh, I, I would say we just I just had my first real exit and my syndicate's first exit, which is a hard tech company, which is a flow battery company. So it's delightful to see, and I think it's well deserved. It's a great technology, as this does seem like the best right now, the best period to be a hard tech climate company or an investor in them that I've ever seen. Uh, sure. But I still get nervous. <laughs> yeah, no question. Well, to that end, then, I mean, I guess last last question, the other, you know, historical analog in, in solar was at the time when the market was scaling up and when there was this brutal cutthroat competition amongst all the different solar technologies and the costs were falling, the right place to be was downstream. And that's when you had all these developers who did really well by arbitraging the price of solar today that they could sign a PPA at versus the price of solar when they actually had to procure. This is when you had the distributed solar companies like Solar City and Sunrun emerge. You know, the the even the sort of balance of systems companies like like Enphase and Solar Edge and others. Is that going to be true in hydrogen as well, where the the best place to be is going to be downstream of the electrolyzer? I think it might very well be. I think there's still, the whoever wins electrolyzers will actually do amazingly well. And so if you can pick that winner, great. But I do think there's a lot of stuff I've seen that's quite interesting in a hydrogen logistics. In uh, And there's, there's a whole lot of stuff that's uh, a possibility there. If we figure out better ways to more cheaply move hydrogen with low losses, that's a huge opportunity. And various people are working on that problem. I think hydrogen project development, now right now, that's the big boys. That's, you know, um, international oil companies, companies like Enel and Iberdrola, you know, it's, it's tens of billions of dollar market cap companies that are trying to move in to be the primary developers in that sector. Uh, distributed hydrogen, I think is quite interesting. I've seen a number of startups that have a way to do distributed clean hydrogen production that is maybe cheaper than making hydrogen centralized and moving it to certain locations, at least for low volumes. So there's a number of interesting companies uh, in that space and various ways to use hydrogen as well. You know, we've seen things like, uh, you know, universal hydrogen, sort of a hydrogen logistics company and also, uh, you know, play for hydrogen in relatively short to medium range flight. I'm not sure that they're actually going to win, but I think that sort of application that sort of gets better as hydrogen gets cheaper is also an interesting place to be. All right. So you fast forward, I don't know, three years. Uh, where are we going to be on the hype cycle for hydrogen then? We'll still be on the hype cycle, unfortunately. Uh, but I think if we fast forward to the, the second half of this decade, in you know the 2025 to 2030 timeframe, that's when I think we'll start getting somewhat more real 
on hydrogen. And that's when I think you'll start to see you know, some of these projects that are being built right now for steel production with hydrogen, uh, maybe some experiments and maybe some first actual real deployments of hydrogen for seasonal storage or super long duration storage starting to emerge. Uh, Electrofuels probably will be too early at that point, but maybe not. So that, that's when I think in the, the lead up to 2030 that we'll start to see this actually achieving commercial scale on the order of uh, billions of dollars. That's what the, the Gartner hype cycle has the, the hype uh, portion, then the trough of disillusionment, which it sounds like you're saying is going to be kind of mid-decade, and then ultimately the slope of enlightenment. And that's the that's the period we really want to be in. Indeed. And I will say, you know, as all, for all that I've sort of tossed some cold water, you look at BNF's numbers of in a, a two degree Celsius scenario, a net zero by 2050-ish scenario, that the investment, just the capex in hydrogen production infrastructure between electrolyzers and the power is on the order of you know $10 trillion, something like that. So by saying something is policy dependent, I don't want to say it doesn't mean it's not going to happen because we do need policy to say we're going to go to, to net zero. And when we decide to do that, we're going to find that in a lot of these sectors, hydrogen is the best option. And that's going to scale this industry to be truly, truly enormous. Mez, thanks so much for coming back. Shale, it's always a pleasure. Vermeznam is many things, but among them, he is a technologist, a futurist, he's a successful science fiction writer. He's also an investor and an energy wonk uh, and one of my favorite people to talk to about big clean energy issues. What did you think of the conversation? Uh, we always love your feedback. Give us a rating, um, if it's good, I should say. Give us a review, also if it's good. Send us a note if it's bad, privately, of course. Uh, or just tweet at us at, at Interchange Show. Send us an email at contact at postscriptaudio.com. We do actually really love getting feedback and ideas for future episodes. The Interchange is produced by Postscript Audio. Our producers are Daniel Waldorf and Stephen Lacey. I'm Shale Khan, and this is The Interchange. <laughs>